So if you've ever had a stomach flu, like I did this week, um, earlier, don't worry, I didn't have it yesterday, because all of you are going past the Purell if I shook his hand. Um, it's probably a universal experience for you if you've had the stomach flu that somewhere in the midst of that moment, you oscillate between thinking that you are going to die and hoping that you might. Um, as, you, as you come to appreciate some of the intricacies of the commode that you never appreciated in the past and, and how accommodating it can be in a moment like that, um, that's kind of a universal experience if you have that kind of sickness. But um, maybe it's not universal, but I don't think my experience is necessarily unique to me but when I get like that and you get kind of caught in your head, um, it becomes a season for self-evaluation. And uh, inevitably for me, it looks, it's like every index by which I might be measured suddenly is thrust before me, um, usually having to do with every role or relationship that I hold. So um, uh, uh, husband, um, father, uh, pastor, um, neighbor, um, Christian, human, all of those sets of expectations that are laid upon me are like, how's it going? And in a moment like that, you can imagine that the first word out of my mouth is, I'm failing. I am flailing and failing. And I'm in a fog. Because it feels very disoriented in a moment like that. And I don't know what's the next step to take. You feel just very disoriented in a moment like that. It does feel like a fog. And that's what the stomach flu And that may be your experience in the midst of a stomach flu. That may be your experience when you're feeling perfectly well. That every index by which you might measure yourself suddenly starts to feel like, I forget it, what's the point? I'm done, I'm out. Why bother? And you're in a fog. And you wonder, what is the next right step to take? The letter that we're listening to from Paul, in writing to the church at Galatia, he's writing into a community, a set of communities in what is now southern Turkey, that were they themselves in a fog. Had nothing to do with the stomach flu. But it had everything to do with how they thought about what made them valid. About what validated them. About what gave them some sort of stability and strength upon which to stand. Paul had told them one thing. And they embraced it. And then these other sets of authoritative voices start waltzing in and sound very credible and start very interested and speak of Jesus as Lord. And then they offer a very different way of thinking what validates you, what holds you together. And they are in a fog. And though it is an ancient letter that we are considering this winter and spring, it could not be more relevant to yours and my condition because it's your temptation and it's my temptation and it's my fog and it's your fog. What measure most matters? How do we even think of measuring? And in the midst of their fog, Paul is trying to shine a light from outside the fog. And that light has everything to do with what he will refer to as the promise of God. The promise of God. And what we're going to look at today as we continue our consideration of his letter is, I think, three things about thinking about this promise and how essential it is to understanding the promise of God in perspective of any other set of expectations that might be light upon you. And those three things we're going to consider about it are the priority of God's promise, the perils of minimizing that promise, 
and the practice of applying that promise. The priority of it, meaning its precedence, the perils of minimizing it, and also the practice of applying it. We're in chapter 3. If you're able to stand, we're going to start there in verse 15. Would you stand if you can? Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. This is the pithy, curious word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you haven't caught it by now, if you are new or late in coming to our study of the church, of the letter to the church of Galatia, is that Paul is in a fight. He wasn't just sort of bored one day and say, I think I'll write a letter. He's up against something. He's in a fight for the churches in southern Galatia, but he's in a fight for their understanding of how they might be reconciled to God. How about they might understand how their their favor with God is established, or, or how we kind of put it idiomatically a few weeks ago. How does one get a seat of welcome at God's table? That's the question in their mind. And they heard one thing from Paul, and they heard something quite different from others, and they're in a fog. And that fog centers around, what, what about the, the law you, you keep talking about, that they keep talking about? What is it about the Mosaic law? And if you were listening carefully from the, the reading from the call to worship and the two readings that... Um, that we heard from the, from the Schuylers, you, you might have heard the certain tension. You, you heard one voice from Psalm 119 just sort of extolling the wonders and the beauties and the, and the intricacies, and, and they were just relishing the law. And then you hear Paul writing Romans 7 saying, look, here's the deal. I might like the law, but in my innermost being, I'd just as soon give a finger to the law. It's the way it is. So what is it with the law? Are we established to God by how well we conform to it? Or is the law have another purpose? 
and to help us see through the fog, to bring a light from the outside of the fog, Paul is there to say, I want you to look at the promise of God. Because you can never understand whatever expectations God has for you in the law unless you first understand the God's promise to you. And so the promise he's speaking about here is, of course, the one he made to Abraham. So remember the the picture of Mark Chagall's painting of Abraham a few weeks ago? There it is again. Beautiful, right? He always does good stuff. Abraham. The promise to Abraham. Which The the word promise and covenant in this passage, you might have heard, kind of used interchangeably, because that's what they are. If you make a covenant, you make a promise. And if you go back and rewind the tape into Genesis, in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, here's a promise. Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to birth a nation through you. You had no idea you could. I'm going to birth a nation through you, and I'm going to bless that nation. And I'm going to bless that nation so that it becomes a blessing to every single nation on the planet. Boom. Full stop. That's it. It's a promise. Why is Paul bringing up this rather arcane piece of Israelite history to a bunch of Greeks who couldn't care less? It is not because he's trying to impress them with his ability to play Trivial Pursuit. I'll take covenants and promises for 200, Alex. It's not it. He's invoking it for a couple of reasons. One of which is this. To reaffirm for them this. That the blessings of the promise to Abraham would come to Abraham simply by trusting that it was true. They didn't have to prove anything, any worthiness to receive it. He simply had to appropriate it by faith. He just had to trust that God would keep his word. That's one reason why Paul invokes it, because that has similarities to the gospel. And speaking of which, that's the second reason why he brings it up. That the promise that's made to Abraham way back when, which they saw through at best a glass darkly, has now reached clear, vivid concreteness and fulfillment in who Jesus is. He's the one, the one that they've been waiting for. He is the the one that fills up that promise that's first made to Abraham. Um, Some of you may know the story of Ernest Shackleton. He and his band of merry guys set out on the, the ship Endurance, to make a crossing of the Antarctic back in 1914. And if you know that story, you know that they, they, they ran aground in the ice flow, and eventually that endurance is crushed under the crushing weight of the ice. And so they have to find a way home, and it's, they're like on an expedition for years. And they have to go trudging about on sleds for months until they're rescued. And in that, that picture up at the top of your screen, that, I think, is the name of the, the boat the James cared that came to rescue them. And they see it, as a, as a faint, murky thing in the distance, and they think, is that it? That, that might be our rescue? That, that might be the promise of getting off of this ice flow? And then in the scene, season, the picture beneath it, that's it. That's the James Caird. That's, they see it in all its full splendor and, and detail. I use that as an illustration to say what, mo, what Abraham saw on the horizon a little bit opaquely, now we see in Jesus most vividly. That's the argument that Paul is making to the Galatians. That very old promise has now come to fulfillment. It was made to Abraham. It's fulfilled in Jesus. It's received by faith. Full stop. And you Galatians and you North Carolinians have to take the promise in priority if you're going to understand anything else about what God's expectations are you of, of, of you are. You have to understand the promise of God to you before you can understand the expectations of God of you. 
Because if you don't get that right, it will be like looking at anything through the wrong end of a telescope. You pick up a telescope and you look through the larger optic and whatever you might be looking at there is now tiny and insignificant and you can barely make it out and you don't see it in its proper size. But when you finally flip it around, you see with all of its detail and you see it in its proper regard because you're looking at it in a way. You've got to look at the law of God through the lens of the promise of God, not the other way around, which I know is as abstract as it could be. Don't worry, I'll unpack it. You have to see the expectations of God and his law through the lens of the promise of God to Abraham that comes to you by faith and is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I've said that, and Paul said that. Why should that be true? Why should the promise of God received by faith be held in precedence above the law? He's going to give you four reasons that I'm not going to go a lot of detail into. I'm going to go really briefly. But the first reason is this, and it has to do with why Paper always has to yield to scissors, and why scissors always has to yield to rock, and rock always has to yield to paper. I didn't make up the rules, but that's the way it works. And Paul is saying the first reason why the the promise takes priority is that it came first, like 430 years before. There was a promise to Abraham, and then the law comes. So when God finally does give his law to Moses on Sinai 430 years later, It's not like God says to Moses, psst, that part about the promise to Abraham, scratch that. I'm trying, I'm starting over. Bad plan, sorry. How about this? The covenant, the promise to Abraham is binding. And therefore, the promise is received in a binding way. And so, if the promise comes before the law and it's appropriated by faith, and the law comes after, then the law whatever it might expect of us, doesn't overturn how we come to receive the promise of God. The promise has to be seen in perspective in order to see the law. That's one reason promise came first. The other three reasons have to do with the nature of law itself and its limitations. When he says in verse 19, why then the law? Like that, like, Look, if the promise is so important and the law is not what we thought it was, why, why do we do it? He says, it's because it was, it, it was added because of transgressions. Rather than the law being the means to establish your favor with God, he's saying the law came to show us the severity of sin. If you were with us last fall when we were studying the Psalms, and we went to Psalm 51, and we recounted David's contrite prayer in the wake of his seduction of Bathsheba in the conspiring to murder of Uriah and his effort to conceal the whole matter from his best friend Nathan, David comes to the realization that before any of those sins had been committed, they committed their first sin against God. Before you committed adultery, you committed a sin against the Lord. Before you tried to defraud somebody of what was rightfully theirs, you tried to you committed a sin against God. Before you hit your spouse, you hit out against the Lord first. And until we all get that, we only think of it as something maybe bad, but not severe. And the law is there to show us. Um, I didn't make a slide for this, and you can look at it later, but there is a, a quote from a, the clinical psychologist that you might have heard of a lot recently, a guy named Jordan Peterson. There's a, there's a quote in your bulletin, which in so many ways is just saying this. If you will take 
your heart and hand and see it for what it is, you will realize that there is no law that could tame it. But given the proper circumstances, you could act in the same monstrous way that the the lion's share of Germans did in a season in which they thought the only way for a world to be flourishing is to exterminate an ethnicity. As one person put it, the devil is in too deep. And until you see the severity of it, you don't know your true condition. That's one reason why the law is there. To be a measuring stick, a confrontation of what's in our hearts. At which point, some of you, if not some of them, might have said, okay, Paul, so we've caught you in your words. You say the law is a measuring stick. You say the law does tell us the difference between lying and not. You are setting a rod, a plumb line. So why then, Paul, would you say that the law has nothing to do with whether or not we have a seat at God's table? And Paul, like a good fighter, anticipates the hook. And he ducks. And he offers his own left in love. And he explains why the law The law is there, he says, to show us how we're all captive to sin. Verse 21 and 22, you heard him say, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. It's a long way of saying this. The law is like a CT scan. It looks penetratingly. It'll never be a cure. It diagnoses with great specificity. It will identify everything in which you fall far afield of what he intends for you to flourish, but it will not ever sustainably, profitably motivate you to do the right. It's good. It's just not good enough to make you what it intends for you. The law comes after the promise. The law shows us the severity of sin. The law shows us the incurability of sin in our own strength. But it also, Paul says, is there to show us, or there to act to us, like sort of like a nanny. The word that sometimes is translated as a custodian or as a guardian. You heard it in Psalm 119, in one of the earlier readings, how the, the psalmist there is rightly extolling all, all the law's wisdom, all all the insight into what is holy. And Paul is saying, I agree. It is to be relished, but it's still to be thought of in a provisional nature. My favorite novel of C.S. Lewis's was his last novel, which I think is the hardest to understand. It's the, it's the novel that's a retelling of the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche called Till We Have Faces. And it's about sort of a, um, a homely young girl who is the daughter of a king. And... Um, she is sort of raised and nurtured by one who was a slave. Um, his name is Fox, and, and he um, is an excellent teacher. He kind of makes fun of her, some of her fantastical motive moments. But in a very brief exchange between the two of them, she at one time asks Fox, are the gods not just? And Fox says back to her, oh, oh no, child. What would become of us if they were? In other words, he is saying this. If you and I are to get by, we're going to need something other than justice to be our aid. We're going to need mercy. And that is what the law is also showing us. 
we will need something more than justice because all justice will do is show us worthy of condemnation. We will need mercy. And therefore, Paul is saying, look, if you are saying to yourself, I really think I can do this, I will act with resolve and clarity and I will, I will stand up straight and look out and, and do the right thing and I will create a wonderful resume of how I have lived and Paul will say, good luck with that. Because in the end, your effort to do so will only confirm just how much in need you are of mercy. How much you are in need of a promise that will be appropriated by belief in the one who gave it. Okay, thank you for that rather thick and whirlwind tour through the, talk, the nature of the promise and what the law is for. Why, why did I belabor that? Why did Paul go there? What is he doing? What is he so significant? Why should you care? I'll tell you. Because the temptation that the Galatian church is feeling is the same temptation that you and I do. And what I mean by that is this. Every single human has two options for how they can have a sense of this inner acceptance and validation. They can come up with some standard, some basis of their own devising and do their best to live into that. Or they can trust that God has made a promise received by faith that in Christ you belong to him. Those are your two choices. Create one of your own devising or accept that promise to be true. And we hear that and we go, look, it just feels more true in my bones to think that I create this sort of template for what a good life looks like and I do that and I just, that's going to be how I'm going to get there. We are inherently suspicious of anybody saying, you know what? Your sense of validation is going to come from outside you. Such that um, a guy named Joseph Pieper, who wrote a book in the last century called Leisure is the Basis of Culture, he said this, man seems to mistrust everything that is effortless. He can only enjoy with a good conscience what he has acquired with toil and trouble. He refused to have anything as a gift. And I listen, I go, he's right. I, I nod because I, I do find satisfaction in, in setting goals for myself and living into them and seeing some of them accomplished. And you do too. That's not the problem. The problem is when you make all the good things you might do what determines or what makes you good in an ultimate sense. We don't think we'll ever know ourselves as good unless we do all of these things that are good, unless we fulfill all of those roles and expectations that we eventually inventory ourselves by. Here's the deal. You go there. If you conceive of all the good things you do as what makes you good, you have set yourselves up for a perilous life. A perilous life. Not because you've tried to do good things, but because you've tried to make them into more than they are entitled to. And so we've talked for a very long time now about the priority of the promise of God, of what establishes your favor and your seated at God's table. Now I want to talk about the perils of minimizing that promise. Of thinking that, yeah, Sunday, but rest of the week, God, you know what? It's just, I gotta, I gotta fight for this. Let's talk about the perils. What happens if you minimize the promise of God in the way you think of what validates you? You become a menace. But not like Dennis. You become a menace 
in a far more profound and destructive way. In a variety of scenarios. And here it's going to get really practical and maybe really uncomfortable. Ready? What happens if you allow something other than God's promise to you as the source of your inner existential validation? You have, first of all, set yourself up for frustration. Why? All of us are on a path. All of us have aspirations. It's a good thing. It's the life we got. Use the time. Stop wasting it. Stop wasting it. Stop killing yourself and wasting time. It's nothing wrong with having aspirations. It's normal. But if you make those aspirations the basis of you believing that you are ultimately and eternally validated, you have no idea what might be coming down the pike for you. As he says in The Princess Bride, life is pain, sister. And it is. Because there's plenty of stuff that's outside of your control. Stuff you can't predict. Especially your own heart. And therefore, if you enthrone your own aspirations to become the crown, the crown of your being, you are not ready. You are not ready for the frustrations that this world is coming to. You are not ready for the frustrations that will hit you in the mouth. That's one peril. But let's, let's be more optimistic. Let's say, yes, it's working so well. It's going so well. I set these goals and I'm getting there. And that's a great thing. And far be it for me to sort of, you know, throw shade on that. What happens, though, if, if things are going well? Then that's what, you know what you set yourself up for? Anxiety. You set yourself up for anxiety because now if you've gotten there, you have to be sure that nothing changes. That it's all holding together. You can't get sick, you can't get old, you can't get fired, you can't get cheated, you can't get defrauded, you can't get hooked on drugs, none of that. If something determines your very validation with God, other than his promise of life to you and his son, then even when it goes well, you have set yourself up for anxiety because stuff changes. Whether it goes poorly or it goes well, you have also set up yourself for this peril, to compromise your integrity. What I mean? If you believe what you do is what makes you ultimately valid, then you are more likely to conceal your errors and your weaknesses. You are willing to look people in the eye and lie to them to their face about what is truly weak in you. Because you think that's what makes you valid. And when that stuff is finally exposed, you will deny it, blame shift it, throw it on somebody else. Because what have you believed? It's all about what is true of me that I will conceal. If God is your promise, then even in your failures, while they are hard to acknowledge, even your regrets will never be so important that you can't admit them. You'll begin to acknowledge them, to deal with them, to own them. If you make the promise of God the substance of your eternal validation. Do you see how if you minimize the promise, how you become a menace to yourself? Will you not also be surprised then how if you're going to become a menace to yourself, you also become a menace to others? Because if my aspiration here is what makes everything for me, and this relationship right here is between me and it, guess what? I've just put a target on their back, and now they are my enemy. Because I have made this thing my glory. And guess what, friends? 
relationships have a tendency to be inconvenient. And when they're inconvenient, well, that route to that might either be more circuitous until you get there, if not off the table at all. But if they're in the way of your validation, then they're an enemy, even though they love you. You can do that to them. You will sometimes never say the hard thing to someone because you need their approval more than the Lord's, even though they need to hear it. You will never enjoy or celebrate those who show more aptitude than you do because you're immediately going to start to feel small because they're better at it. Because why? Because you needed something else to validate you. And sometimes you will not even help those who might someday exceed in the adulation of others because you need that more. There's a, a, a cartoon that I could not find in the New Yorker annals this week of a, of a man who's uh, kind of been part of a company for a very long time and he's greeting a brand new employee and he, and he shakes the hand of this brand new employee and he says, hey, I've heard a lot of great things about you, um, mostly that I'm better than you. Um, you laugh. And I do too, but do our hearts at not times sink because we meet somebody that's like, wow, that's, that guy's got it. You know people like this, and maybe you're like that person. But in every one of those scenarios, what have I done? I've, I've painted for you the perils of making something other than God's promise to you through Abraham in Jesus received by faith the basis of your metric which now I've, I've sort of cast a pall upon our proceedings today. woo this, this sermon needs red pants. <laughs> What's the solution? Because I could just sort of beat you over the head and say, stop it, stop it. And it would have some kind of effect, but tomorrow something else is going to happen. You're going to be right back there. How do you practice the promise? How do you apply this promise that you are his and belong to him on no other basis than what he has done for you and his son. It's a, it's a thing you believe, but it's also a skill that you practice. It's, it's something you kind of lean into. And how do you do that? I'll tell you. Because every time you find yourself clenching your teeth or your stomach tightening or your fists starting to get a little fidgety because you're ready to lash out because of something like this, guess what? Not only are you feeling an intense emotion, you've been given a great opportunity to practice the promise. And you do have to practice it. How? I'm going to get a little help from a, a little uh, litany of scenes from a recent episode of This Is Us. Yeah, I know. I'm going to cry too. If you don't know that story, it's about um, uh, three kids, um, uh, one of whom is a daughter. And in, in these series of scenes, we're going to see Kate, the daughter, when she's around 18, um, who has had uh, several reasons for... Um, struggling for how she sees herself. And uh, right now, she's on the verge of considering of applying to music school, and yet she feels very ambivalent about that prospect. And uh, watch. Gonna get out of my head And into my heart Gonna find all the strength I had from the start I know if I just stay strong, 
Yeah, I know if I just hang on, I'm gonna find where I belong. Dad! No, keep, keep going. I almost got the whole thing. Dad, I told you I don't want to be on camera. This was just for you. Look, come on. I, I thought that... You know, if you saw how great you were, you'd reconsider sending in a video. Thanks, as if this isn't stressful enough. Oh, c come on, you can't be mad at me today. All right, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Kate, okay. game's about to start. If you... Kate, I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't have done that. But it would break my heart if you didn't want to be on camera because you don't realize how beautiful Dad, you are. Dad, stop. Just... You saying stuff like that to me was fine when I was a kid. But I'm older now, and I just... I just... I don't see myself the way you see me. And, you know, no one else sees me that way either. So, you saying it all the time... It just hurts. Kate. No, Dad, I need you to stop, okay? Brothers both abandoned ship, so this means more room for us, right? I watched the tape. Okay. Don't ever stop. Don't stop trying to to make me see myself the way you see me. Okay, Katie girl. I won't stop. She is a perfect example of what it means to apply the promise. The promise of God is inviting us all to see ourselves as he sees us in his son. There's no way around it. And what does she do? She puts the tape in and studies it and checks it for every intricacy. Guess what? You and I Whenever we are wondering how the Lord sees us, must baste our brain with what he's told us about how he sees us in Christ, if we're his, if our faith is in him. You have to go there. You have to think in those terms. And if you think, that's meditation, I don't do that kind of thing. I don't think about that kind of stuff. I don't do that. Yes, you do. You, you do it every time that you are needing to see or to remember who you are because you're just thinking about the other things more. You know exactly what meditation is. You just meditate on the wrong object. You have to think you have to remember, you have to consider what he has told you, O oh man, O oh woman, O oh child, 
you have to remember. You also have to pray. And maybe it's a stretch to put it this way, but what does she say to her dad? She goes, I, all these other voices, I, I hear them, and you say this, and you've been saying this since I was a kid, I don't listen anymore. It doesn't make any sense to me. Stop it. Um, prayer? She's talking to her father. She's acknowledging to her father, I, I, I want to see myself as you see me. I can't. And in fact, there's a whole lot of, a lot of other voices that make me think that those are more true than yours. Okay, that's a prayer of lament. Sure is. And so when you are more tempted to think, you know, I don't see it like that. I just don't. That's prayer. And, and then, and she re- keeps rewinding the tape. I, I'm, I'm gonna keep listening. I'm gonna keep thinking about it. I'm gonna finally put it into words and say, I, this is how you see me. You have to remember to apply the promise. You have to pray to apply the promise. And then you have to act as though it's true. Something happens in her reconsideration of just staring at the way her father delights to see her in that mirror, no matter in the number of ways in which she hates herself. Something just sort of clicks. And, and she just decides, I, I am going to see me as you see me. And please don't ever stop telling me how you see me. And the word of the Lord comes to us and says, don't worry. I got that one covered. It's clear and irrevocable and full and final. I see you because I see you in my own son. And I don't betray the promise I made to him, so I certainly won't betray it to you. You remember. You unburden yourself in prayer. And then you act as though it's true. Is that all you do? Probably not. You probably do need to talk about why your parents didn't get along or stuff like that. and Stuff to unpack that. But it's always going to come back here at some point. Let me close with this point. Some of you may know the name Elizabeth Elliot. Um, Her husband, Jim Elliot, and four others um, flew to Ecuador back in the 1950s to evangelize a tribe of Indians known as the Alca. And uh, Jim and his four buddies were eventually slaughtered by that tribe. And in my previous pastorate in Texas, I had the privilege of knowing one of the men who was sent to retrieve their bodies. But Elizabeth Elliot spoke, as you might expect, at length about how she reeled at the news of hearing that her husband and those four men all died at the hands of those they were coming to share good news with. And she wrote, in a book in 1996, that she was no clearer on why that happened in 1996 than she was in 1956. But she did culminate a few thoughts about that experience by saying this, I believe with all my heart that God's story has a happy ending, but not yet. Not necessarily yet. It takes faith to hold on to that in the face of the great burden of experience, which seems to prove otherwise. What God means by happiness and goodness is a far higher thing than we can conceive. A healthier faith seeks a reference point outside of all human experience. The pole star, which marks the course of all human events, not forgetting that impenetrable mystery of the interplay of God's will and man's. We are sinners, and we are buffoons. It is not the level of our spirituality that we can depend on. It is God and nothing less than God, for the work is God's and the call is God's and everything is summoned by him and to his purposes. She is looking for a light outside the fog of her own experience. And that is how she is applying the promise of God. 
She is doing what Kate was doing, appealing to how her father sees her, that she might see herself accordingly. That's her task. It's her challenge. And we need his word and his spirit and one another, both to know the priority of the promise, the perils of minimizing it, and the practice of applying it. Even from within the fog. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.